You're listening to The Mom Inspired Show, episode 53 with Wendy Rowan. Welcome to The Mom Inspired Show. I'm your host, Amber Sandberg, and this show is created to inspire, encourage, and add a little extra fun to your day. Hey, you guys, today we have Wendy on the show, and she is a pediatric physical therapist. She shares with us many things that we can look for in our babies and toddlers, from struggles with breastfeeding and the baby's latch, to toe walking and stimulating the baby and what the warning signs look like. Wendy also shares with us about reading baby's cues and why to start tummy time from the beginning. I also ask her about SIDS and if there's anything that we can do to help avoid it. So if you are pregnant or have an infant, this is such a great episode to listen to and share with your friends. Let's go to the show. Wendy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Amber. So I like to start off every show with an icebreaker and I love to travel. So I love asking people where their favorite destinations are. So what is your favorite vacation spot that you have gone to and why? And this can be with or without kids. Uh, I'll probably say Alaska every time I've been with and without kids. Um, my dad was a partial owner of a nice cabin on the Kenai Peninsula, um, which is just like three hours south of Anchorage. And so I've gone up several times um, with different parts of the family and done different things. Um, it's right on the Kenai River, which is world famous for uh, salmon fishing. Um, mm. So there's always fishing going on. It's not really my thing, but uh, the unlimited sunsets uh, over the river and just the vast amount of green and mountains and water. and Totally not what I expected when I thought about flying to Alaska. You know, you think North Pole layer yeah, of ice, right. um, but it is just gorgeous. And then there's just so much wildlife there um, where the cabin is situated is right next to a natural path um, for the moose when they cross the river and go up um, onto the plateau, they go right by the cabin. And so sometimes they're eating our flowers in the front yard and uh, just so many amazing experiences, bald eagles. And, um, you know, even if you go into the heart of, the Denali National Park, which used to be called Mount McKinley. Um, there's just amazing wildlife viewing um, inside that park. And, you know, it's just, there's so many things that are just not seen anywhere else that are just breathtaking. And um, I never get tired of going back. Even if we do the same thing, it's just, yeah. it's just amazing every time. Yeah. Um, so where, where do you guys fly out of? Uh, where are you located? I'm in Boise. Okay, so um, how far of a flight is that to get to uh, Alaska? Uh, it's only about three hours from Seattle, so we you know we we'll have to fly to Seattle and sure. go from there. Okay, but um, yeah, it's yeah, not that's cool. as bad as I think. Right. Well, think. yeah, it's kind of like going to Hawaii from LA. You know, it's kind of yeah. you know yeah. that's four hours, I think. But um, so, yeah. any recommendations for um, the moms listening out there that are thinking, you know, what this is on? our list to do, especially with kids, um, any tips that you have that you're kind of like, okay, this is a good time frame to go, um, with kids. And, um, do you recommend, so if people are only going one time, you know, in their life, you know, yeah. unlike yourself where you've gone multiple times now that you've gone yeah. with kids, do you have any suggestions on what might be the most ideal ages to go? If you're trying to really go like only one time? Ooh. 
You know, I always think about that when I take kids on vacation. I always think, what are they getting out of this at this age? And, and you know, what age would be the best for this vacation? Um, I think probably, um, you know, we've taken kids under five. And, you know, fortunately, it's sort of a home environment in the cabin. So it's, um, you know, it's just like going to somebody else, a relative's house or something for them. But there's always amazing things outside the door. But um I think from like an educational learning experience and appreciation for mm-hmm. Alaska, yeah. I would say eight and up. You okay. know, they really like to learn and they really like science and they're really, you know, maybe they're interested in photography or learning more about um, nature and science. That would be a great age. But I'll tell you, if, if you have kids and you don't have a cabin to go to, um, the cruise is probably the best experience yeah. you can have with Alaska. Because... Um, my mom used to be a travel agent. And oh, cool. The Alaskan cruise was the number one preferred favorite cruise of wow. all travelers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's really beautiful. And then you have all your amenities and you're yeah. not like. It's easier, you know, when you marriage. have kids. Yeah. yeah. That's that's kind of on my yeah. list. I would like to go and, and cruising um, was the way that I was thinking. Um, we went on a uh, Disney cruise in the spring and the the girls did great. So that kind of gave me a little bit of a feeling of how do we do on a cruise? And, um, but I am waiting for them to be a little bit older. I mean, they're three and six. So, uh, my six year old would be fine, but my three year old, it's, it's a long flight coming from Nashville. And so, uh, that's why I was asking you that. And so, um, what are the, what are the towns that if you were cruising, that you would say, don't miss these towns. Cause I I've noticed that when looking at the itineraries, they, some of them go to certain places. Like if you could yeah. pick one or two of the towns that you're, you're thinking, okay, you cannot miss these when you go there, which ones would you say that they are? Um, I, I don't know. I've only been to basically two regions of Alaska. So as far as the cruise ports, um, sure. the one I know is called Seward. Mm. Oh yeah. And it's, mm-hmm. it's part of the Kenai Peninsula. Um, but that's where if you get off the boat and go on land, there's lots of things to check out and mm-hmm. you can go touch a glacier. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And then cool. there's a, uh, there's a cruise, you know, a one day tour, um, that takes you out into where the whales are and you see, you'll always see mm. a whale, if not oh, several fun. whales, you see otters, you see bald eagles, you see, oh. um, little, I can't remember what their names are, those little penguins that hang up on the rocks. Oh. Puffins? Uh, puffins. Oh, yes. Puffins. I know that from the cereal. And then, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the boat takes you into where a glacier is calving, which means the glacier is, has moved down to the level oh. of the ocean. And, you know, they could be 30 to 90 feet tall sheets wow. of ice that mm-hmm. off into the ocean. Wow. And just make this incredible booming sound. And it, wow. you know, That's cool. The boat. It's really amazing. So um, I think that that Seward port is definitely probably the easiest access to a lot of things that I think would be interesting for kids. Um, the other ones are more, you know, they're more the fisher towns and um, fishing towns. Um, and I don't hear as many people mm. travel to those other ports, like if they were just going to a city in Alaska for a vacation. Yeah. Usually the Kenai Peninsula is the pretty most popular. And then again, the Denali National Park. So I think all the cruises go to Seward and then some of them are longer and do other things. I see. Yeah. And yeah. 
So is it light outside in the summer, like all 24 hours? Is that how it works? Not quite. Okay. Uh, I think the, the shortest night is about three to four hours. Wow. So that's so. where the cruise comes in handy too, especially if you get an inside room. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. Pitch black. Yeah. 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 We have, yeah. We have like, you know, um, light darkening curtains. Yeah. You would need to, that would really mess you back. up. Yeah, for yeah. sure. But it also, I mean, like I said, the sunset is three hours long and it's like, you don't want to go to bed. Yeah. That's um, crazy. Yeah. It's kind of like being in Vegas where you just, you never really know what time it yeah. is. <laughs> There's no clocks. <laughs> you you, you didn't see anything. You're like, I don't know what time it is. <laughs> you have no reference. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that in more detail because I, I do feel like a lot of people have that on their list to want to go someday. So um, it's it's always nice to pick someone's brain um, a, a little bit about their personal experience. So, but let's get started. Um, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, sharing um, your name, where you're from, how many kids you have, and how you got to where you are today. I am Wendy Rowan. I'm a pediatric physical therapist. I'm originally from San Diego, California, but I live in Boise, Idaho, and I've been here for the last 10 years. Um, I have one daughter who is seven, and um, I'm very close with my sister's children. They are eight and 12, and so we do a lot of our traveling, usually is with both families. Um, so they're kind of my, you know, my my. Adopted kind of kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're yeah. really amazing. They're really amazing kids. And um so that's uh my family life. Um I've been a pediatric physical therapist for ten years. I graduated from um PT school with my doctorate degree thirteen years ago. And um so just over time I've evolved into becoming a specialist in infant development and prematurity. Mm. So I see kids from zero to 21, but um, wow. I, my continuing education and my training and certificates and all those things are, have um, narrowed down to in- infants and preemies. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, and that leads me yeah. into my first question. What made you decide sure. to become a pediatric uh, phil- uh, physical therapist? Um, it's sort of a roundabout way, but basically I always wanted to work with kids and as a professional. And I mean, since before college, I was a babysitter, nanny, worked in a daycare. And then uh, after college, I was pursuing medical school to be a pediatrician. Um, realized that wasn't as lucrative as it sounded and was, I, I didn't feel like it was compatible with being a really good mom. Um, and so I sort of backed off a little bit and found physical therapy as an interesting profession that had a little bit more flexibility and more, uh, more conducive to mom life. Um, and so once I got, once I realized that, um, physical therapists work with kids, I was like, that's it. That's me. So, um, jumped into PT school and, you know, you can't emphasize in pediatrics in, in the grad program, which is unfortunate, but I did my internships at, um, pediatric facilities, like Seattle children's hospital was just an amazing experience. So it just kind of evolved that way. It's just, you know, definitely wanting to work with kids and wanting to make a difference, but also wanting to have balance um, in real life to be a mom and enjoy my own children. Yeah, I I love that. And, uh, you know, what stood out to me too is um, 
<laughs> you when you were you know in college and you were thinking about um, this isn't going to be as lucrative or um, you may not be able to be the kind of mom that you want to be. You know, that's just something that you know. I feel like as women, we have to kind of think about that, right? Where I feel like the men don't have to ever really think about that. You know, they're just kind of like that's what they're going for. Where you know, um, being older now and having kids and looking back you can see where um, certain jobs, you can kind of do them more part-time, more easily. And I went in the corporate route and, you know, kind of thinking about that. And with my girls, I think I'm going to kind of, you know, talk to them about that a little bit more about, you know, do you see yourself staying at home completely? Do you feel like you may want to um, be working part-time and then with your kids part-time? And then, or do you see yourself working um, completely outside of the home. Um, because I didn't really think about that, you know, and things have changed so much. So even if I was younger, my mom sat down to talk to me. I mean, it's hard to foresee how it would look today, the opportunities that you have, and there's no way, but, but kind of now seeing that I'm kind of like, you know, I think I would like to, you know, you know, kind of walk through that with my girls to think like, okay, let's really think about this because if you do want to work outside the home, you're going to have to, you're going to have to go for jobs that are a lot more flexible, you know, with their schedules sure. and stuff like that. So I think yeah. that's neat that you were thinking about that in college. Um, yeah. So jumping into the whole PT side of everything, what do you wish moms knew about, you know, pediatric uh, physical therapy that they probably don't know when it comes to their babies and their kids that you feel like, man, I wish they really understood this is where physical therapy comes into play. Okay. Yeah, um, it's actually <laughs> very mysterious for a lot of people. If you have, you know, the fortune of not having children with disabilities or, or having relatives or close friends with disabilities, you don't realize um, what all goes into somebody developing with physical challenges. <clears throat> and so, um, but aside of disabilities and physical challenges, you know, Pediatric physical therapists encompass so much more, but it's it's different than adults because primarily it's about development. Yeah, we see the kids who broke their arm or had a foot surgery, um, you know, things that you would think that an adult would do for therapy. But but the majority of it, the vast majority of it, is developmental issues, whether it's a neurological issue, um, you know, brain processing issue, like anything on the spectrum, uh, the autism spectrum. Um, there are physical challenges that come along with those things too. So you don't have to have a child quote with a disability or a special needs child to um, benefit from physical therapy. And I think the hardest thing that I try to impress upon moms from the beginning is that if your baby is struggling at all in many, many areas of development, therapy will identify what it is, help you treat it and, and resolve it in a short amount of time if you catch it early. And um, the, the, unfortunately, there's still sort of that mentality from the, the pediatrician world that babies grow out of everything. You know, there's always the assumption that the parent is uh, over anxious and over worried and they just need to chillax and they just need to wait and everything will be okay. And I, I'm kind of the opposite. I'm saying, well, no, they don't grow out of it always, every single time. Now, what's the harm in getting a full evaluation to see what is going on 
and what's contributing to the issue. And then I can tell you whether or not they're going to grow out of it based on my evaluation, um, which is worlds more than what a pediatrician does in five minutes in your office, in their office. So um, I, I want parents to recognize that they can access people with expertise in infant development beyond just saying to their doctor, I'm worried that she can't hold her head up and she's going that's old, you know, um, that it's, there's no harm in, in having an evaluation and learning about what is going well and what assets they have and what their challenges are and how we're going to help them. Um, you know, early on, we want to just, just, you know, reroute them back onto the right path and not let them, um, learn abnormal motor patterns or compensations um, where their developmental process is going to be affected mm. later in life because they aren't following the right pathway. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest thing is yeah. we can help kids in so many different ways. And um, it, I, I really encourage parents to advocate for their children. If you think something is awry, if you're worried that they're falling behind in their development, if you're worried that they're more uncoordinated or they trip more or they're toe walking, just pursue a referral to a, a pediatric physical therapist and you will get information. Yeah. And you and you mentioned um, this about the toe walking. So that's mm-hmm. one of my questions. So we'll just jump into yeah. that. Um, I'd okay. love to hear your thoughts on, you know, yeah. kids that are prone to walking on their toes and what what should you do if you start seeing that? And and when does it become an issue? Because I'm sure there's times where kids just walk on their toes a little bit, you know, at some point, right? Um, but that's not what they normally do. So like, how do you know, okay, this is like a constant problem. Like what, what should people look for and what should they do? Um, toe walking is a perfect example of getting help as early as possible for the best outcome. So most pediatricians will say, eh, if they're still doing it at three, we'll talk about it. Or, okay, they're still doing it at three. Let's see what they're doing at five. And if they're still doing it, we'll send you to PT. That does not work. <laughs> so toe walking is um, normal for a very brief period of time, a mm-hmm. very short window of time. Um, not all babies do it, um, but it is normal. When babies first pull the stand, they first start cruising, they first start walking, you may see them up on their tiptoes. And the only reason they're doing that is they're actually trying to seek stability, which sounds weird because you'd think that if your feet were flat, you'd have more stability. Right, yeah. But what they're doing is they're just, they're just locking out their body and they're locking out their muscles to <laughs> yeah. be, to feel stable. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you're kind of like freezing yourself and you're going, I won't fall over if I just <laughs> if I'm freeze. on my tiptoes. And that's kind of what it is. Yeah. Yeah. But as you think that about that as an adult, so, you think about if you go on your tiptoes, you're more likely to fall over. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking about that. I was yeah. thinking before we talked, I yeah. wanted to do an analogy and I was like, yeah. try to stand on your tiptoes yeah. and stand still. No, I it doesn't. Work. No, it doesn't work. I was, so we were just at a concert, um, at an outdoor venue and, um, I was going on my tiptoes to see the lead singer and, uh, it's hard to balance yourself on your tiptoes for a very long time. And there were times that I had to keep grabbing my husband and, and then other times, you know, and then he was handing me the binoculars. I'm like, I cannot look through the binoculars and be on my tiptoes. It's going to make me fall over. So yeah, it's funny to think about that. The babies are doing that to get stability. I think, oh my gosh, like that's the opposite for me. Right. Right. So what they learn very quickly is it's not a good strategy. 
And so they'll come down onto their heels naturally and say, oh, yeah, flat feet is way better. And then they move on and you don't see toe walking. So um, I think what people think is, oh, it's normal, but it's only normal for a very short period of time. Just like, um, oh, I don't have another great example right now. Um, I kind of think of the when kids do the kind of downward dog before they start crawling. Oh, yeah. I don't know mm-hmm. if you remember your yeah, daughters. They kind of like look between their legs. They'll get on their hands type. and their toes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And it's like. Yeah, it's like Most a weird crawling. It's like a weird. It yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't really get them where they want to go. And so yeah. it goes away. And um, so I, I want parents to know that if you see a, a baby just pulling up the stand, just cruising on the furniture, not yet um, taking um, independent steps, that a little bit of toes are okay. Can they go down on flat feet? Or do they resist you? If they're resisting you and you're trying to um, kind of load their body and get their heels down and they insist on being on tiptoes and they refuse to do anything else and they're falling over and they're not progressing um, from cruising to walking independently, then the toe walking is already an issue. So it's already an issue um, at 12 to 16 months. Um, If your child starts walking independently by toe walking, it's not going to go away on its own. That's the strategy that they've figured out that gives them what they think is the most stability. What mm. really becomes is controlled falling or not even controlled falling. Oh. These kids don't stand still. They run from one spot to another because they have no stability. Oh, and interesting. They're and they're mm. falling down the stairs. And, yeah. So, and, and the other piece of that is if you let toe walking continue, you're not only are you, are you perpetuating this, weird solution to finding stability, but it actually is related to weaker core muscles, weaker glute muscles mm. and weaker calves, believe it or not. Oh, you know, that's another, weird. another like, yeah. Yeah. Weaker yeah. calves. Cause so, you would think you're using uh, that more being on your toes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah, from a stability standpoint and, and how you use your calf muscles to stabilize and shift your weight forward and backward and push off when you're walking and running, you're not doing that when you're on your toes. Um, and so we don't want them to continue to have these abnormal patterns because they just get weaker and weaker, um, less and less stable. And then you start having issues with the range of motion in their ankles. They can get to a point where they cannot put their heels down because all they know how to do is toe walk. I know a grown woman in her 60s that can't wear anything on her feet that doesn't have a heel on it. She cannot put her heels on the ground. So what is it doing physically to your body that they cannot drop their heel now to the ground? It's it's your heel cords, your calf muscles, your Achilles tendons, they shorten over time. So if oh. you never flex them and stretch a muscle, it will shorten. You know, if oh, you sit wow. in a chair forever mm-hmm. and you never stand up, you will not be able to straighten your legs. Mm. So that's how the body is adapting. We don't want to get to a point where they don't have the range of motion now, no matter how hard we try, they can't physically put their heels down. Because so that will lead to um, surgery where they cut zigzags into your calf to try to get you some more length. Um, it gets you in orthotics. It gets you, I mean, you're not doing any functional activities at this point. You're just mm. trying to undo everything that's done. So I don't like the wait till they're two, wait till they're three, wait till they're five. I, if, I honestly will tell you if, if they insist on being on their toes and they're on their toes more often than they're not at any age, 
you absolutely need a referral and you mm-hmm. absolutely need to treat it. And it's really hard to treat. It sounds like the simple thing, like, hey, just put your heels down, right. stretch your ankles. Yeah. Right. But it's very complicated. And it's actually associated with um, speech delays and sensory processing issues. So either process, sensory processing disorder or anything on the spectrum, um, including ADHD. So wow. um, it doesn't cause those things necessarily, but there's a correlation. So you might come to PT at 16 months. Say, my baby's been walking for six months and she never puts her heels down. And then we find out that she has a hearing issue. Mm. And so, oh, by the way, she hasn't picked up a lot of words. Oh, these are connected, you know. Um, so, and it doesn't mean there's anything neurologically wrong. We don't really know why exactly they're connected, but they are. Um, and so it's not just, oh, they're going to be a fast, you know, put them in sprinting and, and you know, fast sports. Um, and they'll be fine. Oh, they can jump really high. Put them in basketball. It's like, no. There's, there's nothing that really isn't anything good about it. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, this kind of so, leads me, yeah. well, this leads me into talking more about babies and you and I had talked about this, um, before, um, do you feel like there's things that be- can be done if, you know, moms are struggling with nursing and the babies are having a hard time latching? Do you feel like there's something physically going on? And I know that, you know, they, uh, clip the tongue. Uh, I forgot what that what the correct word is for that. Do you know what that is? Um, what I'm referring to under the tongue? Um, it's called a tongue tie. Oh yeah. So uh, I don't know what part they're actually clipping though. Um, that's what I'm. Yeah. It's the blanking. frenulum. Oh, okay. The frenulum. Yeah. So I know that that there's a physical aspect with that. Is there anything else that you have noticed that if they're struggling that, you know, um, they could work on something, um, and it could help them. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, same principle, advocate for your child, something's wrong. Pain, breastfeeding should not hurt ongoing. It might be a painful when you're not used to having a baby, you know, suction on your breast, that might be painful, but it should not be painful ongoing. And it's, you know, sadly, one of the biggest reasons that parents quit breastfeeding is because of the pain. Um, physical, physical therapists, occupational therapists, and speech language pathologists all have um, infant feeding and oral motor function as part of our domains of, of, um, areas we treat, diagnosis that we treat. And so I explained to people, we're kind of the opposite of the lactation consultant. So the lactation consultant knows everything about mom and her breasts and her milk supply and, uh, mastitis and everything that's going wrong on the mom's side. They know what a normal latch looks like. They know what they, you, what you can do to help your baby latch with a good latch, but they don't know beyond um beyond tongue ties grossly over you know um the the profession itself they don't know what's going on with the baby um and we study motor function we study muscles we study um, how the body functions and suck swallow breathe is a fundamental motor function um and so we can assess uh things like the tone in the cheeks do they have too much tone not enough tone to get a good you know, a good vacuum. What is their tongue doing? Is it curling up and going up to the roof of their mouth? Is it bunching back in the back of their mouth? Those things can happen with or without a tongue tie. Um, what are they? What are their lips doing? Are their lips too tight that they can't flare their lips open like a fish? And so they're getting a poor latch. Why is the milk um, leaking out the side of their cheek? You know, that what's going on? Do they have tight muscles in their neck? Is their tongue doing the wrong thing? Are their lips doing the wrong thing? Are they compensating for some sort of weakness? or something else. Um, so there are so many things that we evaluate in a baby during a feeding um, evaluation that 
is overlooked by most other professions. Um, you know, probably a lactation consultant who's been doing it for eons can identify those things pretty well, um, just with experience and, and learning. You know, I, I try to learn what lactation consultants know, but that's not my expertise, right? So I am specialized also in infant feeding. And um, it's amazing how you can pick out a couple little things that that are awry and how simple the treatment and the exercises are and how much improvement you can make in the latch and the comfort and the amount of intake and the time it takes for them to feed. Um, you know, there's always problems with reflux when, when there's feeding difficulties between mom and baby and, and who, who wants to breastfeed when it hurts so bad and your baby is screaming bloody murder and you, you know, you feel like you're doing something wrong. Um, it's really, it's really frustrating. So I, um, Again, encourage, advocate for you and advocate for your baby. Say something's not right. I need somebody to evaluate my baby. I need to get help. And, and pediatric therapists have that expertise. So believe it or not, you could go to pediatric PT if you're having painful breastfeeding. That's interesting because I don't think anyone would ever guess that. I mean, um, I had an amazing lactation consultant, so I went to her, but, um, I don't even know who is a pediatric physical therapist around here. So that's definitely something to look into, especially for all the expecting moms. You know, I definitely would search that out before, you know, you have the baby just so you have that on hand, uh, because I don't think people are aware of that. And like you said before, I feel like people just really view physical therapists as people that you go to when you've had a surgery or something's off and you do these little exercises, you know, that help you, you know, that's the, that's the, the gist of what I have, um, experience with. So I'm glad that we're talking about that. Um, because I don't, I don't think that people are really thinking about it in regards to babies and breastfeeding. And I also know that you, um, like to share about, um, you know, babies being overstimulated and, you know, letting them get too tired. So so since we're talking about infants and stuff, do you want to kind of jump into that and discuss your thoughts on that? Yeah, I was just going to add one thing about, um, you know, giving yourself to a feeding therapist. I think most people, if you're having trouble with breastfeeding, you, you seek out a lactation consultant. But I've heard so many people say the lactation consultant didn't work. I did everything she told me to do and it didn't work. The next step should be a feeding therapist. If not simultaneously, but that's, you know, that's probably wishful thinking in, in this era. Um, but if lactation consultant doesn't help, it's not the mom, right? You know, it's, it, there isn't a death sentence where a baby and a mom cannot feed. Absolutely. There's nothing we can do about it. That almost never happens. And I'll even say like low milk supply has a lot to do with the baby's oral motor function. So again, you don't have to blame yourself for low milk supply, get an evaluation Mm. and see if your baby needs some help doing a better latch and a better suck and promoting more, um, promoting your milk supply. But anyway, yeah. So, so (laughs) segue into other pediatric issues. Um, I remind me what you asked. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. Um, just talking about, you know, um, the baby's cues, you know, getting too tired and being overstimulated. Yes. So that's one of my big soapboxes. So um, there is a fantastic book written by a pediatric physical therapist who's um, wise and, and has decades of experience. Her name is Roxanne Smalls. And the book is called Building Babies Better. And it's a perfect, simple explanation of how infant development happens um, through 
the st- you know early stages of development. I focus on zero to one. Um, so one thing that she really points out that I think a lot of people don't understand is that um, babies do not process visual stimulation until six months and older. So everybody's like, oh, the flashcards with black and white patterns. Oh, the red. Oh, the flashy toy. Oh, baby Einstein on the TV. None of those things are teaching a baby anything in the first six months. Crazy, right? Um, they, they're just, that's not where they're at developmentally. In the first six months, they're working on their sensory systems, meaning like um, tactile information, touch what things feel like on their hands, what things feel like in their mouths. They're, they are processing their hearing, you know, identifying their parents' voices. Um, they're working on how to move their body in the world of gravity, which is opposite of being crunched up and, and, and snugged up in a, in a fluid-filled womb. Um, you know, there's all these things that the body has to experience in order to be a functional human and I think the world of gravity is just open air. You know, basically the only thing reference you have is the ground, right? Um, so that first six months, you know, and I'll get on my tummy time soapbox at the same time. It's all about these other sensory experiences. It's not about what they can see and how long they can lift their head up and stare at something. Um, so I think that what's happened over time, there's been a couple of glitches um, in, in technology and advertising. Um, there was this perception some time ago that they did studies on babies' brains and they said, oh, these things stimulate a baby's brain. Therefore, a baby is learning. And so we need to have baby Einstein and flashcards and flashing toys and um, battery-operated toys and other learning things on the TV and all those things. And they, uh, they skewed the research information to... Uh, benefit their marketing campaign and that is so common and so normal in infant baby products and toys so uh all these people think oh these babies are stimulated so my baby's going to be smart if i put in a baby einstein video or i show them the flashcards and i shake them in front of their face or i paint black and white zigzags in, in their nursery all of those things are very overstimulating to a baby um so as soon as a baby's overstimulated there is no more learning And beyond that, there is poor sleeping, poor behaviors, too much crying, uh, um, decreased ability to self-soothe, irritation, agitation, a grumpy, fussy baby. Um, And a lot of parents don't see it. But the best cue I can explain from a baby that's overstimulated is that they will look away from the toy that you're shaking in front of them or look away from your face. Or turn away from busyness and they will, they will kind of give that like 10 mile stare. They'll just daze out and you can move the toy in front of their eyes again and say, look, baby, look. If they don't look, they are done. Mm, <laughs> they're like, that's good to know. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, I cannot process any more information. I am brand new to this world. Every single thing in my environment is bombarding my brain and my mm. brain is trying to figure out what to do with all this information. The last thing a baby needs is flashcards and shaky toys and and, and uh, two-dimensional TV screen videos, mm-hmm. um, bright lights, yeah. think, um, more wow. activity. Yeah. Um, and it's very much connected to poor naps and poor nighttime sleeping. And, um, besides breastfeeding, the other major complaint you hear from moms with newborns is, is poor sleep. Right. And 
Now, I have a, a whole post about how to read your baby's cues for when they're overstimulated and when they're starting to get tired before they're overtired and the overstimulation is preventing them from being able to go down into, and sleep and restore. So it's um, definitely one of my soapboxes. Um, I'm all for very simple, old-fashioned toys. There's also a documentary. I think it's Disney. It may be National Geographic. It's called Babies. Beautiful documentary. Amazing. It tracks four babies from zero to walking in four completely different regions of the world, completely different cultures, completely different rearing, um, child rearing traditions or, or tactics. Um, and it's fascinating. Um, and it basically the whole point is that it shows you, you do not need the bright flashy toys. You don't need, um, the, the bouncing on the ball therapy classes. You don't need, um, TV screens, you know, the babies that were in um, third world countries and in really rural areas without technology developed beautifully, beautifully. And um, it just goes to show like, just because Fisher Price and Babies Are Us say <laughs> that this, you know, baby cell phone that has all these lights and buttons and it says this and it talks like that, or the ball, my least favorite, the ball that rolls on its own. Oh, yeah. and talks to you from across the room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is, that's zero learning. It's giving your baby's attention. Yes, it's stimulating your baby's brain, but a baby cannot process that information. And so I'm really kind of staunch on uh, just simplification and simplifying toys. You'll save a lot of money and you're, you'll save a lot of clutter in your house. Yeah, right. <laughs> but exactly. you just don't need that much. After six months, yeah, you bring in the visual system and you might get a little bit more complicated with your toys because they are at a higher level of uh, processing objects in their environment at that point. So, yeah. So uh, overstimulation is kind of, it's a good thread that goes through um, a lot of issues that babies have in the first year, including breastfeeding. Like, you know, my baby will only feed when I'm in a blackened room in a certain rocking chair with a certain type of music um, because they've been so overstimulated that they can't even think about how to eat. <laughs> right. If, yeah. If you don't that's turn a good off point. that extra right. information. So, yeah. Well, Wendy, okay. we're almost at the end, the end of the show. Um, is there anything else that we might've missed or stands out to you that we didn't talk about? And I can, th- I'm going to throw this at you and I don't know if you know much about this, but going along with moms and new babies, um, you know, SIDS is a very scary thing. So I don't know if you, have any thoughts on that? Um, if this is your area of expertise at all. So if not, we can talk about something else, but I, it just came to my mind. So I thought I'd ask. I'm glad you brought it up. So I I wrote down notes for my nutshell advice for parents (laughs) and tummy time for, from day one. And I, I kind of alluded to that, but all development, whether it's physical, fine motor, um, speech, cognitive, whatever, all development stems from tummy time. And I think I feel like I need to write a book about it or something. But like, all roads lead from tummy time. Mm. So you're <laughs> uh, saying to start but, from the beginning. Oh yeah, yeah. Day one. Okay. Day one. Day one. So here's the thing. So back to sleep and SIDS. Um, SIDS is horrible, and you're lucky if you don't know somebody or have had uh, a baby die of SIDS. But I know too many, way more than I would like to know, mm. and it's devastating. And um, there has been ample research from hundreds of years, couple couple decades or a couple centuries of research that has narrowed down the what causes um, what 
what makes a baby more at risk of SIDS? And there's lots of things that are uncontrollable. If your baby has low birth weight, um, they have a higher risk. We can't control that. Preemies have a higher risk um, for lots of different reasons. But there are a lot of controllable factors like smoking anywhere near the baby, um, the temperature of the room, and making sure that they're not um, overheating. Um, but every recommendation that the AAP has come out with since they started the Back to Sleep campaign in 1992 has decreased the incidence of SIDS. Mm. And they first said back to sleep within, I want to say within eight years, SIDS dropped by 50%. There isn't any intervention in life that has Mm -hmm. changed something by 50%. Yeah. So take it seriously. And that's why 25 years later, we're sleeping on our backs because we cannot figure out what it is that's causing this problem. But we know that it's, it's, much, much, much less um, common if we put our babies on our backs. So soapbox, yes, back to sleep. Always back to sleep. Always. And then along those lines, who's sleeping, putting a baby in your bed, no matter what device you have, no matter where you put the blankets, no matter how light of a sleeper you are, it is one of the higher risk factors for SIDS. And I have to be that naysayer that a lot of people don't like to (laughs) listen to on the internet but there is no such thing as safe co-sleeping. And I see it everywhere. And I see the research says this is one of the highest risk factors. And I know parents get desperate. I know you have a screaming baby and they won't sleep or they won't feed unless they're in bed with you. I understand those, those moments of desperation and you make the choice you have to make at that time. And I will not judge you for that. I'm just glad your baby is alive, you know? Right. Yeah. And so I just really try to emphasize that. <laughs> You're, the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, there's a reason they come out with recommendations. They are doing extensive amounts of research with thousands thousands of babies over decades and decades of time. And when they make a recommendation, it is based on accumulation of all of that information from all the experts and all the trends that are going on, all the variables in our environment that are contributing to this, this SIDS problem or any other problem. And when they come out with a recommendation, it's not like... Ha ha, we don't want you to be able to sleep with your baby. So we're going to tell you that you can't sleep. Like, <laughs> they want your babies to live. Yeah. You yeah. know, I'm not so, trying to be mean. Know, yeah. Mm-hmm. No. And, right. and that's, and the, you know, that's where, how I stand with the TV time and all those other things. It's like there's no other incentive for a medical professional to tell you what's safe for your baby other than to tell you what's safe for your baby. You know, right. They don't have a motive. They don't get kickbacks from right. <laughs> the non TV toys. Yeah. You know, yeah. So right. anyway, right. so, yeah. um, Back to sleep, back to sleep. My website, um, it's everythingbabies.org. So everythingbabies, plural, dot O-R-G. All these topics we've talked about, I've written about for the most part. I don't think I have a toe-walking post up there yet. Mm. Um, but if you want to know more about SIDS, type in SIDS in my search, and you'll see my article on SIDS. If you want to know more about flatheads and crooked necks, um, why sitters aren't good, why I think that you sh- babies shouldn't be put in a sitting position until they're um, developmentally, they can get themselves there. Oh, you mean like, like in a bumpo when you say sitters? Yes, okay, I'm like yes. babysitters sitters. aren't good. <laughs> <laughs> no, we need babysitters. We have no family here. <laughs> so you mean the bumpo, like that they need to be sitting up on their own before they go into a bumpo? Yeah. Oh, good to know. Oh yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Bumpos. Um, there's those floor sitters. There's just all oh, kinds yeah. of stuff out yeah. there. Okay. It says, oh, this helps your baby sit. No, it doesn't. Tummy mm-hmm. time helps your baby sit. Okay. Before we completely wrap up with tummy time, (laughs) 
if if they are really hating it, both my girls hated tummy time. So what is your thoughts when you're starting it and they are mad, mad, mad that you are putting them on their tummy? What, like, how long would you suggest when, if they're like that, if they're like ticked off that you've put them on their stomach? Yeah, it's not, um, it's not necessarily how long do you let them scream? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's actually, how can you make this a better experience for them? Okay. And so I, I brag to everybody I work with that I've never had a baby come into my clinic with hating tummy time that hasn't left and graduated as a tummy Aww. time change. So, so what is one takeaway that you could share with the moms um, to help them enjoy tummy time better, th- their babies? I think the biggest tip is that you don't have to be flat on the floor to qualify for tummy time. Anytime their chest is getting input or, or getting some sort of compression, um, that's helping develop their lungs and it's helping develop the, uh, the sphincter that causes reflux that's underdeveloped. Um, those are important tummy time experiences. Um, it, you can be on an incline. You can, you can lay back on the couch at an incline and put your baby on your tummy. That's tummy time. Dad can carry baby around like a football, you know, face down where they're, you know, holding oh, their head in their hands and yeah. their legs are draped over. That's tummy time, you know? Oh, okay, so it, cool. It's, yeah. And it's not about how well they lift their head. We're not talking about neck strength when we're talking about fundamental tummy time. That's part of it. And that becomes part of it later. That's important. But it's about the, the input to the chest, to the lungs, to, um, you know, the development of the internal organs and their sensory system and how the brain is organized to develop milestones piece by piece. So we are designed, babies are designed to start on their tummy. They're on their tummies. You know, you see all those cute um, newborn photographs of them all curled up on their tummies. That's how we're designed. But we're taking that away for back to sleep. And so we have to make up for it when they're I awake. see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, how yeah. about you, um, as we wrap up, share again your uh, website and where people can find you on social media. Yeah. So my website is Everything Babies. Dot O-R-G. So that's all one word, everything, babies, plural, B-A-B-I-E-S dot O-R-G. And the search bar is in the very top menu and type in any words that we've used today and it'll pull up whatever articles are related. Um, and and then uh, I have links to like research, to other resources. Um, also at the bottom of a lot of the posts, you can get my milestone checklists, which show you how each skill is linked to the next skill. So we're not just looking at whether they're sitting, crawling, or walking. We're looking at, are they shifting their weight on their tummy to reach for a toy? Are they getting up on hands and knees and rocking side to side and forward to backward? Um, And how all those pieces come together to get to the next milestone? Parents are really loving that because you can fill in when your baby meets their milestones. And if your baby's off or you think they're off, you can go back and look and, and reference and you kind of have an idea of where you should be um so that's uh and then i also wrote an e-guide on um getting good sleep and it's best for expecting moms but it will work for new moms that aren't getting any sleep and i think there's principles in there that apply to older kids um it's going to turn into a much more extensive book so it's limited in its scope but um that's also available for the website. awesome my face yeah, yeah. my mm-hmm. facebook page is the same. It's everythingbabies.org. Um, you can search everything space babies, but it's not going to be the first one that pops up. Um, uh, I have a Facebook group called Preemie Power. Um, I just pulled a preemie group and they were screaming for accurate information and help with their babies that they're not getting from their doctors and they're not getting from well-intended parents. Um, 
you know, what worked for me is, is hard when, when your baby is different, you know, so that's bloomed, uh, blossomed, exploded. Um, I do tons of Facebook live talks on there about different topics. Um, a lot of the ones where we addressed today, we've talked, you don't have to be a preemie parent to learn from anything that's in that group, but it's great resources. Um, and so I welcome all parents, um, you know, anything zero to one or expecting would be wonderful if you're expecting, you know, yeah. planning ahead and, and establishing the foundation that your baby's going to need when they come. Um, so that group has been really good. Uh, I'm not very active on Twitter and Instagram, um, but you can search everythingbabies.org and you'll, you'll find them. There's some good stuff in there. It's just, it's not, um, continuous. Not yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, but I, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, oh, I, so I, I am um, pretty active on Pinterest, and I post a lot of really good resources on Pinterest. Awesome. I have, I have a board that is for professional information and advice for parents from parents who are also professionals in the, in, in the development world. So um, I think that's a really good resource for your, for your moms, too. That's great. Well, Wendy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yes. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. And there you have it. Hey, you guys, if you are not part of the Mom Inspired Show Facebook group, what you can do is you can go to mominspiredshow.com forward slash group, and then it will take you there and then take you directly to the Facebook group. And this is a place where it's private and you can post things and I post all the episodes there and you can kind of keep up with me that way. So if you're not part of the group and you want to be, go check it out. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the show and I'll see you next week.